Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm interviewing James Aitchison, the author of Sworn Sword, the first book in a highly regarded series on the years after the Battle of Hastings, told from the viewpoint of Tancred, a Breton knight fighting for the Normans. Three books in the series have been published in the United Kingdom, beginning in 2011, and near the end, you will hear me ask him about the later volumes, The Splintered Kingdom and Knights of the Hawk. But Sworn Sword appeared in paperback in the United States just this month, so we will focus most of our discussion there. Tancred, whose story forms the heart of the novel, is a young man in his mid-twenties. We meet him, as so often happens in novels, at the very moment when his life is about to take a sharp turn, one that he cannot predict. Since, as a narrator, Tancred does a beautiful job of setting the scene, I can't do better than to quote him. Note that Duke Guillaume is the man we know as William the Conqueror, and Dunham is the old name for Durham in northeast England. 1. The first drops of rain began to fall as hard as hammers and as cold as steel against my cheek. My mail hung heavily upon my shoulders, and my back and arse were aching. We had ridden at first light, and had spent much of the day in the saddle, and now night lay once more like a blanket across the wooded hills. Our mount's hooves made hardly a sound against the damp earth as we pressed on up the slope. The path we followed was narrow, little more than a deer track, and so we rode in single file with the trees close on either side. Leafless branches brushed against my arm, some I had to fend away from my face. Above, the slender crescent of the moon struggled to make itself shown, casting its cold light down upon us. The clouds were rolling in, and the rain began to come down more heavily, pattering upon the ground. I pulled the hood of my cloak up over my head. There were five of us that night, all of us men who had served our Lord for several years, oath-sworn and loyal knights of his own household. These were men I knew well, alongside whom I had fought more times than I cared to remember. These were men who had been there in the great battle at Hastings, and who had survived." And I was the one who led them, I, Tancred Adinon. It was the twenty-eighth day of the month of January in the one thousand and sixty-ninth year since our Lord's incarnation. And this was the third winter to have passed since the invasion, since we had first mustered on the other side of the narrow sea, boarded ships, and made the crossing on the autumn tide. The third winter since Duke Guillaume had led our army to victory over the oath-breaker and usurper, Harold, son of Godwin, at Hastings, and was received into Westminster Church and crowned as rightful king of the English. And now we were at Dunham, and further north than any of us had been before, in Northumbria, of all the provinces of the Kingdom of England, the only one which, after two years or more, still refused to submit. And now, please join me in welcoming James Aitchison. Hi, James. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hello. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I enjoyed Sword Sword very much, and uh, that means a lot because it's not normally the kind of book I would read. So it, uh, but it was so well done, and the combination of the the war story and the Tancred's personal story I found really compelling. So nice job. <laughs> The uh, advanced review copy that I received to prepare for the interview didn't really uh, contain any information about you because they hadn't put the author's bio at the back yet. Uh, I know from your website that you attended the University of Cambridge and then obviously that you eventually published this series of novels. But uh, tell me how you how you got from birth to Cambridge and then into writing. Right. Um, well, um, I, I was... Uh... Born in 1985, so I'm um, 
28 years old. Um, I uh, grew up in Wiltshire in England, which is quite rural. Um, it's got a lot of history, uh, and I suppose some of that, um, some of the landscape, some of the uh, some of the history of, of the place, um, sunk in and uh, inspired me in some way. Not in a direct way, but uh, I've always loved history. Always loved castles and, and knights and and things like that from a, a very early age. Um, and I've always wanted to be a writer as well. I've always been writing stories since I was very young, um, all the way through my teens and even to university as well. I always had some sort of story uh, on the go. Um, not necessarily always historical fiction. Um, I think uh, during my teens, I was more interested in sci-fi and fantasy. So those were the kinds of things that I was writing at the time. And it was really when I went to, to Cambridge, where I studied history, um, that was when I started to get interested in historical fiction. And then when I actually thought, hang on, I could, I could do this. I could, um, I could use my historical knowledge, combine that with my love of writing, um, put the two together and, and, and do what I, I saw other uh, authors doing like Bernard Cornwell, CJ Sansom, Robert Harris, authors that I admire and thought, okay, well, I could, I could do that really. Um, and it was when I was in, in my final year studying history uh, that I had the idea for the novel that later became Sworn Sword. It went through many, many revisions along the way, different drafts, different ideas, um, but I, I started writing uh, this novel set in, in the aftermath of 1066, which 1066 and the Norman Conquest was the subject of my dissertation at Cambridge. It was that was my my real focus. I, I, I loved the Middle Ages and I loved the Norman Conquest in, in particular. It, it just such a, a rich period, so much going on, and particularly these years after 1066, so so chaotic and so turbulent. I thought. Uh, it would be great to try and capture that uh, through the, the medium of, of fiction. Um, so I, I, did, I started work on, on the novel shortly after I, I graduated from Cambridge in 2006. And then I enrolled on the Masters in Creative Writing course at Bath Spy University, which, which was and, and still I think is um, regarded as one of the, the best centres for creative writing in the UK and uh, on the year that I spent on that course and um, that was when I really began to develop the novel and it began to, to take shape um, I worked on the themes and the characters I honed my prose uh, and and started to take all these disparate strands that I had and weave them into something more coherent and then two years after finishing that that course um, I was lucky enough to uh, to be offered a publishing deal for Sworn Swords and its two sequels, which at the time were no more than germs of ideas. Um, and I was lucky to have them picked by my publisher preface here in the UK. And and that's that really is the story. So it was it was quite a long long journey from from uh, starting out with this uh, this idea that I had while I was at university um, to final publication um but uh it was 
it it was for me I feel it was it was quite um, there was quite a lot of hard hard work along the way there was lots I needed to get my head around and becoming um, a historical novelist from having been a historian I had to try and think in a different way and apply my research skills to slightly different ends and that was quite interesting and uh, I think I'm I'm a better historian now as well as a better novelist than I was at the start of the, the process so uh, hopefully my, my readers will agree as well. Yes, let's talk about that a little bit because I'm also a historian who uh, became a historical novelist and it is quite a shift in focus, I think, uh, much more than people realize when they're setting out, at least much more than I realized when I was setting out. What was the hardest part for you? I think the the hardest part was, um, and the, the hardest part was, and it still is, when you've got something uh, something like the Norman Conquest or the Middle Ages in general, you've got you've got a very fragmentary um, source record available to you. You don't always have the kind of information that you would want to know about particular events or particular people who are going to appear in the story. You've got to make up a lot of the, the small details about about what people looks like how they spoke um, their mannerisms all this is the stuff of fiction um, but even even larger things um, for example the the nature of certain battles we, we have very short references to them in the the chronicles of the, the period which offer no information about the size of the armies involved or the uh, or their disposition or anything really except who won and and who was defeated. And you have to try and weave a, a story around that if you're a novelist. As a historian, um, you, you can only take those facts so far before you start engaging in speculation, and you have to um, flag that up. As a novelist, uh, it, it was quite strange, really, having a bit more creative freedom to uh, put my more imaginative spin on events and to interpret them in a way which the sources don't strictly speaking allow you're not i'm not saying anything that uh, that sort of goes against the sources but i'm sort of extrapolating from them when i i build my uh, my chronology when i build my world in, in in the novel so that for me i think is is still even now the the toughest thing to try and get my head around how much do i there extrapolate from the sources and, and how how strict should I be with myself and um, so I've always got this conflict within me the the novelist fighting against the historian yes and you know in some ways that's the fun of it is that you you can say things that you couldn't say as a historian because you don't have the documentary evidence. I'm a 16th century specialist, but it's a 16th century in Russia where they have very few written documents that have survived either because they were never created or they were created and burned down in one of the fires that went through Moscow every 30 or 40 years. And so it's a similar situation to, to England in you know the year 1000 or 1066. But it is hard to 
relax, you know, to feel that, that you don't have to, I mean, I always feel compelled to write a historical note at the end and say, this couldn't have happened or this didn't happen. That's a historian in me that comes out at the end. I have the, the, the same thing. And I think if I, if I try to write an extensive list of all the things that I'd, uh, I'd made up, I often feel that the list, that historical note would end up being longer than the novel itself if I try to, <laughs> you know, all the decisions I made along the way. So I try, try to restrict it um, to, to a decent length, about you know, 10 pages or, or less. But I, I, I could... I could talk at length for hours about all the different um, choices I made and the, what I left out, what I um, what I left in, um, all that sort of all that sort of stuff. So let's talk about how that becomes Sword Sword. Um, you you had done the research while you were at university, obviously, and I assume that you continue to do it. Um, is the situation with uh, post-Norman England one where there's, um, is it the kind of thing where you can be on top of all of the sources because there aren't that many, or is it something that you have to make an ongoing project? It's an ongoing project because I'm going, in each novel, I'm going a little bit beyond my traditional comfort zone. So my, um, my dissertation at, at university was based uh, purely on English affairs, so the sources I was using were uh, native English writers, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and also uh, Norman writers as well, writing immediately after the conquest or in a couple of generations after the conquest. Um, but over the course of the novels, as, as my hero Tancred's travels have, have taken him, to place a bit further afield to, um, to Wales and to Ireland. I've had to try to go beyond those sources and, and, and seek out the, the Welsh annals, the Irish annals, uh, and try to, um, try to get my head around those as well. There must be linguistic challenges as well then. Do you read well, Anglo-Saxon and Welsh? Uh, Fortunately, most of the the sources are now available in modern English translations, and um, I, I do have some Latin. Um, my old English is um, uh, is is a bit more sparse than that. But I don't know any um, Middle Welsh or Old Irish, um, unfortunately. But I, I'm I'm thinking of, of learning, if only just to get a bit closer to to the sources themselves. But it it is. It is very lucky now, being a, as a writer writing in the early 21st century, you have access to all these sources um, in translation, which makes it a lot easier. And there is a bit of distance because of the translation, but it's um, it, it, it's marvelous to have all these things um, at not, not at your fingertips, but but they they do exist, and, and you can seek out these sources and, and go right back to the the original material, which it, it's really important to me in, in every novel as well as the all the secondary reading that goes on into all of the um, uh, of the aspects of Anglo-Saxon and, and Norman life everything from food and drink to weapons and and armor and shields and 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 everything like that so I like to go back to to the primary sources because they are the voices of the period this is what people 
if not this is not what they they sounded like exactly but this is this is how they wrote and these are these are people speaking to us from nearly a thousand years ago which is it, it always strikes me as quite incredible that that these voices still exist and we can access them um and that's the way to really get inside the heads of people in the middle ages and to find out what's what motivated them what interested them um and um and what what were they like what were their world views and and this is uh, very important to me in in all of my novels tell us why you decided to specialize in the years right after the conquest rather than the conquest itself well uh this is a question i i get regularly asked um and i see it really as th- this isn't to me this isn't the years after the conquest this is the conquest the conquest didn't all happen in 1066 on the battlefield at hastings when king harold was killed um supposedly by an arrow in in the eye although that's uh, disputed by many historians nowadays um i wanted to show that that the conquest was a it was a much bigger affair it, it took several years for the normans under king william to really establish control over over what they saw as their their kingdom and um they had to fight off numerous rebellions invasion from all quarters and uh and it it wasn't an easy task by by any means um and this this is the story of of what made um what made England what what set it on its course for the next next um 900 years up to up to now um so i i wanted to to go beyond hastings and and explore this period which is just as crucial these re- waves of rebellions from um 1069 to 1071 which is where i've taken the series up to at the moment um are really when england's fate was decided and it could have been very different and the english if they's uh if they'd got their act together um and i'm not going to spoil the story by saying that the normans were here to stay eventually but uh, but if things had gone slightly differently for them then the normans would have been very much on the, on the back foot and and th- there were fears at the time that that they might not be able to hold on to england um and that's that uncertainty that that chaos is what i'm trying to to bring um to light in the series you're right of course the conquest doesn't occur in a day so i'm glad that you reminded us of that as i'm listening to you talk i'm realizing that the we do have listeners in the united kingdom and they will probably know uh what uh, well they will if your educational system is better than ours is here in the states they will know what the the conflict was about but i'm suspecting many of our american listeners uh will not know so could you give us a brief a summary um i'm sorry to put you on the spot like this but of what actually you know what justified the conquest in uh the minds of uh, duke william uh yes of course um in 1066 at the beginning of 1066 the old king edward the confessor is is very ill and thought to be close to death um when he passes away in early 1066 uh harold harold godwinson 
um, assumes the throne. He he takes the the throne. Norman chroniclers see this as as a usurpation. He took it by force. The English writers writing about this event are uh, a bit more ambivalent, but tend to suggest that he was chosen by his peers, his fellow earls and other nobles, as the new king, because Edward the Confessor had died without a child. He had no natural heir. And uh, and the Normans saw that this, this, this was wrong, um, because they claimed that 15 years earlier, uh, Edward had actually promised the throne to William, and Edward himself was of, of um, English birth, but he had grown up in exile in Normandy, and uh, and it was it was considered by the Normans that it, uh, that Edward had uh, had promised the throne of England after his death to the Norman Duke in return for for the Normans sheltering him during his exile. So that that's the the basis, the, the the foundation for for William the Conqueror's William the Bastard claim to the English throne in ten sixty six. Um and there were there were other reasons as well why he wanted to conquer England, namely that it was a it was a very rich kingdom, it had a very efficient tax system which which extracted vast amounts of of wealth out of its um out of its citizens. Um so it was it was very attractive. The Vikings had long realized this, and in fact, there had only 50 years earlier been a Danish conquest of England. Um, so it was it was a very attractive prospect for for invaders and for raiders. Um, and it was also perceived that there was something wrong with the uh, the English ecclesiastical system. The, the, there were various accusations that um, that uh, of 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 corruption within the church, that they were not following the, the correct procedures. And uh, the Pope, Pope Alexander II, actually effectively sanctioned the invasion of, of England by William um, by granting him his, um, his banner, um, his papal banner, to carry into battle when he landed in England. So the Normans saw it as... Um, so it, they, they would have been able to view it as a as something of a holy war. This was a war against a man who had who had stolen the crown, um, who was also a supporter of. Um, uh, um, uh, he was also a supporter of, of these corrupt practices in the church, and he was therefore an enemy of God, and so were all his followers. So there were many elements there um, going into the uh, the decision to to assemble this invasion fleet and cross over to England. Um, that's, that's it in, in a nutshell, quite a big nutshell. <laughs> I'm afraid it's a, uh, it's a complicated subject. That's great, though. That gives us a, a frame. And then within this, um, this larger story, uh, you have chosen to focus on a young man named Tancred who uh, buys into, I mean, he agrees with this rationale. He's, he's fighting for Duke William. Um, right. What is it about? He's a very interesting character. He's very compelling. He's very complex. Um, tell us about him, who he is, and what made him the ideal vehicle for you to tell this story. Um, well, he's uh, he's about twenty five years old at the beginning of Sworn Sword, 
Um, he's served his lord since the age of 14 um, when he ran away from a monastery where he'd, he'd been grown up. He was an orphan. He was, um, he was uh, educated in a monastery but ran away when he was 14 and ended up falling in with uh, this bunch of, of, um, of, of warriors who he didn't know um, but uh, his potential as a as a fighter was recognized by his lord Robert um, and so he's, he's risen up through the ranks from being a, a mere um, servant boy in Robert's household he's trained um, learnt the ways of horsemanship learnt the ways of the sword and um, by the time that Sworn Sword opens in January 1069, he's he's risen to become one of Robert's captains of, of horse. He he commands what's called a conroy, which is um, which is a unit of around well, it, it varies, but but usually around twenty uh, mounted knights. And and Tancred is is recognised as one of the very best warriors in in Robert's household. Um. And the reason that I chose um, a Norman to tell the story um, as opposed to a, an English character, and it, this has um, provoked a lot of attention from readers here in the UK um, in particular, um, I felt that I'd heard the story of the, the, um, the brave English warrior the sort of the tragic stru- struggle of the the Saxons against the Normans, um, in many other novels and and films before, that, that seemed to me quite familiar, and uh, I didn't want to to take um, an English rebel against the Normans and, and tell it from their side of the story. I wanted to do something a little bit different, something which would challenge readers' sympathies and and get them thinking. Hang on, who is it I'm actually rooting for here? Uh, aren't the Normans supposed to be the oppressors here? That's what we've been told. Certainly in England, we're taught to um, to see the Normans as as oppressors, and that's that's the general view that prevails. So I wanted to to show that actually there is more than just a struggle between good and evil going on in in this in these years. This is not a purely black and white thing, and there could be heroes and villains on both sides of the conflict. And that's not to say that I, I present all the Normans as whiter than white. Um, they're, they're not. There are villains amongst the Normans, and there are plenty of good guys amongst the English as well, and all the other various peoples involved in the conflict. So um, I just wanted to give a sense that this is a lot more complicated from a moral point of view than, than lots of people might have previously considered. And you also create sympathy for Tancred right away because uh, we don't go too far into the plot of any of the novels on these interviews because we don't want to give away spoilers. But this is right at the beginning, so I think we can talk about it. Um, Tancred is almost immediately involved in a major raid by the English on uh, Dunham, which is now Durham in northeast England. And in that battle, his lord is killed, and that throws him into both of what we might call a professional crisis and a personal crisis. He also loses his lover in this, the same raid. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? What, because this is where we start to really get a sense, I think, of what it means to be 
a night in this period as distinct from, say, a modern guy going to an office? Sure. Um, well, this is a big event for Tancred. This is why I decided to begin the story here. And this is based on a real battle which took place uh, in late January 1069 when the Normans go to, to Durham. It's the furthest north they've ever penetrated um, up till now. Um, and um, on, on the night of the 29th of January, the, they're attacked. They're ambushed in the night by English rebels and Rob, Lord Roberts, who is the Earl of Northumbria, um, recently appointed by William, he's he's killed in in the battle, and very few survivors make it um, make it out. Um, and Tancred is one of those survivors. But this is a, a hugely significant event for him because this is the man he's been following. He's sworn his his service to, sworn his life to, effectively uh, since he was fourteen years old. So this is a father figure to him, someone who has helped train him, make him who he is, and it's a, a deeply traumatic event for that reason. Um, he's failed in, in his oath, which he's, he's sworn to, to serve and to protect his lord. Um, and even though he, he was uh, elsewhere at the time, when he was fighting elsewhere in the time, the time when, the, uh, uh, when his lord was killed, he nevertheless feels that he is... He is personally responsible in some way. He carries the guilt of his lord's death because he feels he should have been there to defend him, or if not defend him, then at very, at the very least, go to his death while defending him. Um, so this this throws his whole life effectively into disorder. He doesn't know what to do now. He's not. His oath was to his lord. Without his oath, he isn't. He's, he isn't anything. He's outside of society. Which is based on this um, on this structure of everyone swearing oaths of fealty to the the man above him in the chain until eventually the king at the top swears his oath to to God. So everyone is part of this this structure, which um, which um, helps. Uh, it, it, it's um, that's that's how how lords have their um, keep keep the loyalty of the people below them, and that's how. Um, that's how men like Tancreds, um, who couldn't themselves afford to equip themselves with swords and lances and armor and horses, that's how they acquire those things by swearing, swearing their services, and in return they, they give them the, the equipment to be able to fight. Um, so Tancred finds himself outside of this this system and um, and really sort of casts adrift. Um, and it's partly compounded by the problem that because uh, he's one of the very few survivors of this battle, he's actually, he and his friends make it back to uh, the Norman base in York are distrusted by the other Norman nobles and therefore no one wants to hire them. So he's, he's faced with a bit of a, bit of a quandary um, as to, what to do next, where to go. He doesn't want to become a mercenary um, and fight purely for, for money, um, which is not regarded as a, as a noble thing. Um, but he doesn't know what else he can do. Yes, uh, it's that was one of the points that I, I wanted to get to, too, that he doesn't only blame himself. Other people blame him also for not having protected his lord, even though he was wounded in the battle and even though he wasn't actually 
he had to come back from his other mission to get to to Durham to fight. Yes, that's right. Yes, he um, he wasn't actually there in Durham itself he, when the attack takes place. He's out scouting the land, um, looking for the enemy. They they're sort of, they they arrive in Durham and and there is no no sign of the English. They were expecting to have to fight for the town and um, and uh, and they don't. So Earl Robert sends Tancred and his men out to to go and search. Um, to, to scout around and see if they're um, if the enemy are, are lying in wait somewhere. Unfortunately, while they are away from the town, that's when the attack happens. So yes, there's no way that Tancred could have actually been there physically to stand in the way and and to help protect Robert. But he nevertheless feels feels the that guilt feels that he should have been there. So his friends managed to get him to York, as you mentioned, and uh, tell us what happens immediately afterwards, because that's what sets up the rest of the story, really, is what happens after he gets to York, after he's lost his lord. Yes, well, Tancred is wounded in the battle, and it's only through the help of his loyal friends, Wace and Udo, that they that he manages to get back to York, which is something like 60 miles away from, from Durham. Um and uh, when he gets back to York, he's uh, he's um, actually taken into the house of the the, uh, the sheriff of York, the, um, who's a, a man named William Malley. And he's the the deputy of the king in the north of England. He's effectively the most powerful man in, in northern England. Um, and Tancred recuperates under Malley's care. Um, and Mally makes him an offer in in return for for giving him shelter. Um, he wants Tancred to go and and, and deliver a message for him to uh, a monastery, a nunnery, in fact, in uh, in Wiltshire, um, right down in in the south of the kingdom. Um, and even though Tancred thinks that this this task is beneath him, um, after all, what's he been doing for? The last eleven years of learning to fight, um, and he's not—he's not the simple messenger, um, and he sort of resents this task. But he recognizes that um, that he hasn't got any money, and therefore he hasn't got any way of paying off the debt that he owes to Malley, um, and so so he accepts reluctantly accepts this this mission, um, which also involves escorting Malley's wife and daughter away from York because the English, fresh from their victory at Durham, are are marching south and Malley fears that uh, York will soon be under siege and may even fall to the, the rebels depending on how large their army is. So he wants to send his wife and daughter away to London where he thinks they'll be safer. So Tancred's mission is actually twofold. He's got to, got to see um, Mally's women folk to, to safety and then he's got to help deliver this message which is carried by um, Mally's chaplain whose name is Alfwald so that's uh, that's how the the, the plot really um, is, is set up and um, there are numerous um, 
setbacks along the way, um, not least of which when Tancred starts to suspect that um, that not everything is quite as it seems with this this message that uh, the secret message that, that um, Mali wants delivered, and why does it need to be delivered now when there are more pressing things? There are enemies at their gates, and Tancred should feels that they should be it should be. Um, uh, Every man should be on on the walls, helping to fight off the English. And, and yet, Mali seems more concerned about uh, about getting this message to to the nunnery, um, uh, and he can't work out why. And so um, things start to things start to become clearer when Tancred delves a little deeper into what exactly his lord is up to. It must be a particular tension for Tancred that he's being asked to safeguard the wife and daughter of. Um, Mali, where he has just lost his own uh, woman, Oswin, whom he's, in a sense, he's more responsible for her death than Lord Robert, since he was the one who took her out of London. Could you talk about her and which role she plays in the novel and in Tancred's life? Yes, well, she she only plays a very short role in, in the novel. We don't um, see her on screen, as it were. Um, uh, in in the novel, except in Tancred's dreams and in his in his memories, um, she's been with Tancred for about six months prior to the events of of this book, um, and I've I've more or less left it to readers to decide just how much Tancred loves her and how much he feels for her. Uh, I think he's not even really sure himself in, until he loses her. Um, I think he recognises afterwards that. Uh, he saw in her a, a sort of kindred spirit. Um, she's a bit feisty, um, which complements his um, maverick nature. Um, and she continues to uh, dominate his thoughts. She, she's always there, sort of almost haunting him throughout the book. Um, I think what he he regrets about um, about her death is, is the the fact that well he's he's 25 in this book which is is getting starting to get on a bit for a night he's a, a bit of a veteran he really should be looking to um, start a family so that he can um, he, he can uh, beget an heir who will um, who will follow on um, after he's gone and. Um, and I think he he's a bit of a romantic, and he would have liked to to settle down with someone very similar in nature to himself. Um, and even though their relationship was only really starting to buzz at, at around the time that the book begins, uh, I think he's sort of he feels that it, it could have been could have been more. And there, there's uh, so that that regret it continues to. Um, continues to haunt him not just in, in this book but it also it, it, it comes comes back in a um, in a significant way in, in the future books as well um, which I won't say any more about but um, but but it, that his time with Oswin again becomes relevant he's also in a sense haunted by his own profession as a warrior. I mean, this is one of the things I find so interesting about him is that at the crudest level, he's a killer. He's a paid killer. And he does go into battle and he does kill people. And yet he's not insensitive to the costs of war or the reality of war. Can you talk about that a bit? 
yeah, and that was one of the reasons as well why I wanted to um, to begin with Tancred as a, a warrior who was already very experienced, already um, already very accomplished as a as a swordsman, but but someone who's been on many campaigns, who's seen uh, lots of things. They've seen things that that people shouldn't shouldn't really ever have to see, and he, he's. He's seen all kinds of brutality uh, in his in his life. Um, some of which he's been on the receiving end of, and some of which he's he's been dealing out. And that that affects um, that affects someone. Um, I didn't want to begin with a, a character who's just starting out on on that what I call the what Tangred calls the sword path, sort of as a young a young man not knowing anything and sort of and kind of it being a bit. Gung Ho. I wanted a little more reflection and introspection there. He, he's he he knows he knows his job. He's very good at it, but he uh, and so he sort of kind of looks down a little bit on on these these younger warriors who would see it all as a great adventure until of course they get themselves killed. Um, and he recognizes that he has been lucky, and he recognizes that. Um, that there is a huge amount of, of, of fortune involved in battle, and that uh, and he, he's so I think he's aware he's aware of his own mortality. Um, it's constantly there, and he's so there's a, a little bit of a tension, which is now that he's getting a bit older, he's starting to think also, you know, how long should I be doing this? Um, this is this is not um, it's not something I I can obviously do forever. Um, and yet, it's it's the thing which 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 I'm good at. It's the thing which gives me the buzz. Um, it's it, he loves he loves the adrenaline of of battle. He doesn't know it by that name, um, but but he loves the 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 rush of, of that comes with charging into battle. So there's a sort of there's a bit of there's a there's a there's a, a bit of that youth um, that youthful figure still inside him still yearning for for battle um but at the same time there's the slightly older tankers which is warning him um of, of the dangers and trying to calm him down and, and tell him to keep his head um so there there is a bit of a tension within him yes Yes, it's kind of amusing now to think of 25 as a seasoned veteran but of course in the uh, middle ages you were you did um, and you were a man at 15 and you were a warrior at 15. And so at 25, he's already got 10 years behind him or 11 years in his case, because he ran away from the monastery and started. Before we wind up, one of the things I wanted to mention, which you brought up a little bit earlier, but it is an interesting, it's another interesting source of tension within the novel is this clear sense in 1069 that English still means Anglo-Saxon and there's a very strong I think it's probably more a cultural distinction than really an ethnic distinction but and and a linguistic distinction between the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans were you consciously trying to explore that divide or I mean is that a big part or did it just emerge naturally from the story I think it's it did emerge naturally from from the history. Um, 
you're, you're right to point out there's a big cultural divide between the Anglo-Saxons who are now, by this time, they're calling themselves the English, um, between them and, and the Normans. These are very different cultures, um, even though they're separated only by a few miles across the English Channel. There's a, there's a huge gulf between them in culture. And um, so there's a, a bit of that kind of culture clash comes into Tanker's dealings with with um, some of the English characters he meets on his journey. But there was um, there was actually quite a lot of collaboration between certain Englishmen and uh, and their new Norman overlords. And in fact, between 1066 and up to 1068, um, William was very keen to try and court these English nobles rather than try to drive them out of the kingdom or, um, or, 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 or kill them. After the Battle of Hastings, he wanted, um, he wanted their experience because they knew how the system worked. So he wanted a lot of the, of, of the officials of the kingdom still in place. And in fact, uh, those English nobles who submitted to him in the weeks after Hastings were allowed to keep their positions at court. They were allowed to keep their land holdings and they were they were treated well. They were treated no differently, really, to to the Normans. Um, but it all changes in 1069 um, as as a result of these rebellions, which begin to sweep the country. The 1069 is when the the great rebellions um, kick off, and the English unite. Really, the 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 they unite under the forces of of a man named Edgar, who is the last in the in the old Anglo-Saxon line of kings. He's a great nephew of Edward the Confessor, so he's not in the direct line of succession, but he's the last great hope of, of the those English who aren't satisfied with the Norman rule. Um, and that's, that's really when William realizes, three years after the conquest, he's, he's tried to, um, he's tried to make peace with the English, um, recognizing that the Normans are, are only a very small group of people, about 20,000 possibly in a population of 2 million English. Um, so he knows his position is a bit tenuous. So he's tried not to to uh, create too much discord, but then he sees that the, the English are just going to keep, keep rebelling against him unless he does something. And in 1069, that's when his attitude changes. And um, uh, he adopts a much more hostile, antagonistic attitude towards the English. And so then this divide between Anglo-Saxon and Norman really begins to become very apparent. And, um, and that, that's, that's something that I've tried to, to get across in the book is this growing distrust. Anyone, any Englishman working with a Norman could be, um, uh, it could be a fifth columnist. They could be, um, trying to work against, they could be a spy. Um, and likewise, any Norman who has sympathies with, with the English is, uh, is also suspect. So that's, that's some of what I'm trying to, to get across in the novel. And there are divided loyalties. There are certain Englishmen who worked for, um, who are working for um, Norman lords and Alfwald, the chaplain is, is one of those. Um, Malay himself is half English and half Norman, so he's suspect in the eyes of certain people because 
because he his mother was English and uh, it's thought he has some ties to England and may not be entirely trustworthy. Uh, so there's all all sorts of um, all sorts of things going on, all sorts of um, allegations um, in this very confused time. Um, but yes, this is this is when really the the divide between English and Norman begins to harden. Ah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I hadn't realized uh, until you mentioned it just now that there was actually a change in 1069, that, that this tension that you're portraying in the book that comes through so clearly is actually, if not new, it's it's picking up steam, so to speak, mm-hmm. at this time. Um, would you give us a hint of where the story is going to go? And I think you mentioned that you had a passage from The Splintered Kingdom that you wanted to read. Yes, I do. I'll, um, I will read that in a, in a moment. Um, in the Splintered Kingdom, I, I'll try not to give too much away. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I'll try and give a, a sense of what's in the story. Um, in the Splintered Kingdom, uh, these rebellions um, intensify. The, the, the events of Sworn Sword are, are, are in some senses, a, a prelude. And um, in the Splintered Kingdom, what happens is that the Normans find themselves suddenly under siege on all sides. They've got uh, the English under uh, under Edgar, the pretender. They're, they're rebelling again um, with help from Scottish allies. They're also in. They're also negotiating with the with the Welsh, historically um, their enemies, to um, to launch a, a joint attack on the Normans. And meanwhile, um, the King of Denmark um, has his, he's got ideas of his own. He's always thought that he has a claim to to England, and um, and he's preparing to to launch his own invasion fleet uh, to come and and take the the Kingdom of England away. And th- those are just those are just the main forces. There are others as well, and it all sort of comes to a head in the Splintered Kingdom. Um, in, in, in those events, and um, and they find themselves in a very difficult position. Um, and yes, it's difficult for me to say too much more about it because I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. No, that's uh, fine. Just to give people an idea that that yeah. things are going to continue. So why don't you read us the passage from Splinter Kingdom, which I set it up for us. Tell us what it is that you're going to read. Okay. Well, this is a um, passage from. Uh, from one of the battles, and uh, it's it's. I, I thought I'd quite like to give you a sense of um, what it's like for Tancred um, to to participate in these battles. What it's like when you're in the heat of, of the shield wall, which is um, typically how uh, large scale and, and small scale engagements were fought in this era. So this is this is Tancred. The shield wall is a brutal place to be. In all my years, I've known nothing else like it. And to those who haven't experienced it, it is a hard thing to describe. For until a man has stood shoulder to shoulder with his fellow warriors and stared death in the face, until he has stood so close to the man trying to kill him that he can gaze into his eyes, that he has smelt his putrid, ale-stinking breath, his shit-filled brise, and the sweat running from his armpits, until he has buried his blade in that enemy's belly and watched his guts spill forth and his lifeblood slip away. 
until he has done all that and survived to tell the tale. He has not truly lived. How long we held them there, I couldn't say. It felt like hours, and perhaps it was. For the next I could recall, the skies had grown black with clouds, and the rain was lashing down upon us, bouncing off my helmet and ringing in my skull, running down my face and dripping from my chin, soaking through my mail and plastering my tunic against my skin. Men felt my blade, and more than once I had to let someone in the rank behind take my place, while someone passed me a fresh spear, when the one I'd been holding had, it, had its head snapped off or its shaft sheared through. I lost track of the number I had killed, and yet however many it was, it wasn't enough. Still the enemy came, and gradually we were being pushed back, not by much, but with every step I knew we were losing ground, losing the fight. That's very evocative. <laughs> People should rush to the store now <laughs> to find the not only the original but the sequel. Although the sequel is not quite ready yet, it's going to at least in the United States. It's out in the UK. That's right. Yes, the, the Splinter Kingdom will be out on, I believe, August the first in, in the United States. Right. Late, so keep a lookout for it. So they can whet their appetite with sword and sword and get ready. Uh, what would you like readers to take away from this novel? Oh, that's, uh, that's just a question. I, I'd like them to take away so much, but probably um, mainly what I, I said at, at the, near the beginning about um, 1066 was not the end of of the Norman Conquest. It was really just the opening skirmish, and this was when England was forged, and, and this was a this was a decisive moment in, in world history. Really, um, I want to. I want readers to see that this was a complicated and turbulent time. It wasn't purely a struggle of, of good versus evil, and that uh, uh, it's there were heroes and villains to be found on, on both sides of the conflict, and and that's Tancred's struggle really in a, in a nutshell is trying to work out who is he? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? And um, and, and he's he's trying to 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 work out his place in in the world and whether indeed he actually agrees with um, with the Norman doctrine with the the idea that that William is the rightful king and whether he subscribes um, to that um, in the same way that he does or whether the rules have, have changed since um, since he lost his lord so that's that's really that, that's Tankers' journey, and that's why I like readers to, um, to to take away from the novel and, and from the series as, as a whole, because that is those are questions that Tankred continues to to grapple with over the next two books as well. And does the series continue beyond Knights of the Hawk, or are you working on something else now? Uh, it will continue. Yes, um, I'm hoping it'll, it'll continue for quite a long. While I think ultimately I'd like to take Tancred on the first crusade, but that doesn't begin for another thirty years after um, after this this uh, period that I'm writing about now. So so he's got a long way to travel to get there first, and I think he'd probably be a bit old for frontline fighting um, as well by that stage. He'd be in his mid fifties, so perhaps um, yes the. the the, uh, the heat of the, the melee, the charge, that wouldn't be the, the place for him. Um, but uh, yes, there will be more adventures in the meantime. I'm currently working out where to take him next. Um, 
and uh, while I do that, I'm working on something which is uh, it's a little bit different. It's still set in the same period. It's um, it's going to be um, it will be uh, taking place between the events of the Splinter Kingdom and Knights of the Hawk, and it's intended to it's going to, to uh, tell us the story of, of the Norman Conquest, particularly an episode called The Harring of the North. Um, but from a different perspective, um, moving away from Tankard just for a bit to, to, to show that there were other sides to this story. Um, and it's still in its early stages, so um, uh, I, I'm reluctant to say too much about it at the moment because, uh, because I don't want, to, uh, don't want to jinx it. And also um, because I'm still finding, um, finding out where it's going um, and I'm enjoying doing so. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, with all uh, all being well, that that should be published sometime next year in the UK and uh, possibly um, possibly a little bit after that in the, in the US. We'll have to see. But um, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And yes, Tanker will be back. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it. It sounds very interesting to to take the same uh, event and look at it from another perspective. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. No problem. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with James Aitchison, author of Sworn Sword. You can find out more about him at www.jamesaitchison.com. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network has been growing rapidly over the last couple of years, and so has New Books and Historical Fiction. So in my next interview, I will introduce to you my new co-host, L.M. Ironside. Beginning next month, we will be alternating interviews so that we bring you new podcasts every other week. And yes, it's just a coincidence that we both have pen names that begin with double initials. Suggests we should make a good team, don't you think?